You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth And we will praise Jesus' name We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it Although it don't bring much fame Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it But God's word will always stand true It's been tried in the fire, still Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. And I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Friday, March the 1st, Special Edition 123. Who or what was the serpent? In our last episode, we conducted a biblical version of the modern question, who's your daddy? Jesus accused the religious Jews of having the devil as their father, and my, did tempers flare. They told him that Abraham was their father, and Jesus totally annihilated their claims. They accused him of being devil-possessed, and then our Lord told them that he existed before Abraham, but he did it in such a way that he also claimed to be the great I am from the burning bush. When he told them Abraham rejoiced to see his day, They were determined to kill him on the spot. This is an action-packed episode, so don't skip this one. In today's study, we go all the way back to Genesis and try to answer something that has stumped scholars for years. Is the serpent an actual snake? Was this another manifestation of the devil? Was this a devil-possessed snake? Was this a spirit being? We look into several things, and we feel confident that you will be shocked at some of the things that have been right there before you in the scriptures you are even familiar with. If this topic interests you in the least, you need to come along for this powerful walk through God's Word. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today. I'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. Well, we want to thank you for starting the month of March off right by joining us right here on the Pod King Bible Study. Amen. It makes us feel good to know that people are still interested in God's Word. As a matter of fact, it still amazes me of all those who take their time to email us. I want to say thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate the feedback. I wouldn't mind if everybody sent feedback at some point, just letting us know what they thought about everything. And we look forward to getting it every week. Yeah, you know, we have some people listening in Washington State. We'd like to give you a shout out. Yeah, well, don't forget those up in Maine and New Jersey and then even down in Mississippi as well. Well, yeah, we've got quite a few down in Georgia, Alabama, the Carolinas, and Texas, too. Well, I've been contacted by several in Virginia lately as well, and we would have to literally name every state to get them all in. So I guess we better just stop with the naming of the states. Well, that's true. But I don't know how else to properly thank our listeners. I understand. I feel the same way. But I think I do know one way. Oh, yeah? What might that be? It would probably make a lot of them happy if we just got on with our study today. (laughs) I imagine it would. And today's topic really intrigued me, especially since we ended our study last week about holy ground. I'm sure most of our audience remembers we finished that episode talking about the serpent. I've been doing some thinking on it, and I'm not completely sure where to stand. Well, do you mind to enlighten us on what you're talking about when you say you don't know where to stand? I figure this is what you're planning on tackling today. But you mentioned that you weren't persuaded that the serpent was an actual animal. 
Well, in some respects, we all know that the serpent from Genesis wasn't really just a member of the animal kingdom. I must admit that I have struggled with understanding how a snake could talk, but I just accepted it because it's in the Bible. Well, I'm sure there's multitudes of others who feel the same, but we have other passages to help us determine who or what this serpent figure is. A lot of them are found in the New Testament. Most people try to figure it out from the Old Testament alone. Yeah, well, I remember the serpent being mentioned a time or two, but not very often. We'll get to that in just a few moments, but I would like to point out something right here that should be obvious to all of us, but somehow we tend to overlook it too easily. The Bible never calls this figure a snake or even a serpent. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know for a fact that the Bible said this was a serpent that talked to Eve. Are you 100% sure? Well, I, I know it says something like that if it doesn't state it directly. The Bible always refers to him as the serpent or that serpent. That right there alone should tell us it's speaking of a particular entity, being, or person. If I ask you to hand me a book, it seems like basically any book would suffice, right? Uh, yeah. But if I told you, hand me that book, there's only one that I'm speaking of in particular. So you think the phrase, the serpent, is actually trying to point us to the idea this was a specific serpent or being? Yeah, even though the New Testament authors refer to the serpent from Eden, they're really referring to a supernatural entity, not a member of the animal kingdom. Okay, I can see your point, but this is just so different from what most everybody else believes. Well, I'm not trying to make new truth, and I'm not trying to say I have the only truth anybody else has. I believe there's many people who have often wondered about this serpent before. I got a couple of verses that I want to read to you to show you where I'm basing my belief from. I'm not trying to start a new doctrine. There's many people that believe what I'm fixing to be teaching, but you don't hear it mentioned a whole lot in our churches. Some of the problem is that the laity that does believe that it's a little different, they're afraid for what people might think when they hear it expressed differently than they've always thought it to be. 2 Corinthians 11 and 3, Paul wrote to them and said, But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtility. Now listen to that. His, the serpent, his subtility. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Do you really believe that a snake outsmarted Eve and caused her to sin against God? Well, when you put it in those terms, it does seem a little far-fetched. I, I don't know. I have a verse that tells us exactly who and what the serpent is. Do you want to hear it? Yes, I do. What is it? <laughs> Where is it found? It's found in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12 and 9. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Did you catch that? The great dragon that old serpent. In other words, it's that specific one that you know about. That one called the devil. That one known as Satan. Okay, I get that. And I reckon most people do believe that the serpent was a devil or at least had the devil in it or was used by the devil. Yeah. So was it a serpent or the devil, though? Or was it both? <laughs> right here in Revelation and in Second Corinthians 11, serpent comes from a Greek word, optonome. Optonome gives the idea of sharpness of vision. In other words, it's figurative of something sly or cunning. It's something that would be an artful, malicious type person. And it can also simply mean Satan. 
any Hebrew would have known that what happened in the Genesis account contained a divine being. And as we'll see, it was one from within God's own divine counsel. Well, you sound pretty sure of yourself. How do you know this? Well, the vocabulary used by the writer shows us several things about this enemy that defected from God's divine counsel. If we're thinking only in terms of a snake, we're going to miss much of the message that the biblical writers are trying to tell us. Well, I mean, how else are we to think when it says serpent as plain as day? The serpent. (laughs) If it's true that the enemy in the garden was a supernatural being, then he couldn't have been just only a natural snake. Why not? How many divine snakes do you believe there are? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure, but that just seems confusing to me. I don't know that there are divine snakes, but I, I don't know what to call it. I understand. And this might blow your mind, but I'm sure you remember reading of the seraphim in Isaiah 6, which are in heaven, right? The Hebrew scholars and rabbis teach that the seraphim It can be spelled S-E-R-A-P-H-I-M, or it can be spelled S-A-R-A-P-H-I-M, and they were one of the highest orders of angelic beings. Okay, what does this have to do with the serpent? I am confused. Well, out of the 12 instances of the Hebrew word seraph, it's translated in the Old Testament seven times. It's a type of angel. Five times, it's interpreted as a serpent. As odd as all of this sounds, the wording and imagery found in Genesis was designed to alert readers to the presence of a divine being, not a literal snake. If you notice, it can mean snake, it can mean angel or divine being. Do you see now how serpent can mean snake, but it can also speak of a divine being? Eh, Maybe, but I'm still not convinced yet. Well, making that case will involve comparing Genesis 3 to some other Old Testament passages that are very familiar to many readers. There's a deep correlation between Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and Ezekiel 28. Okay, this should be interesting. Let me read you the first nine verses of Ezekiel 28 to get some foundation in your mind. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, Thus saith the Lord God, because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man, and not God, though thou set thine heart as the heart of God. Behold, thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they can hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches, and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore I will bring strangers upon thee, the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness. They shall bring thee down to the pit, and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the seas. Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God? But thou shalt be a man, and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee. Ezekiel 28 is not specifically about the fall of man like Genesis 3 is. It is in a commentary on Genesis 3. The chapter begins with God chastising the prince of Tyre. The first eight verses is really what that is about. God reveals this prince has excessive pride. In verse 2, the prince considers himself a God, which is an L, E-L. And it says that he sits in the seat of God in the King James Version. But in the Hebrew, it says that he sits in the seat of the gods. The actual wording in the Hebrew is Moshab Elohim. So what does that mean? This is a term associated with the divine council. 
The choice of El for the prince who considers himself to be God is really, really interesting. The word El is another word that means God in Hebrew and all of the other Semitic languages. Elohim, that just means more than one. El is God. Elohim is God's. All right. The people of Ugarit, they called their high God El for the use the term as a proper name. Guess what? The people of Tyre, this Phoenician city, did the exact same thing. I see where this passage usually leads, but this is a new twist to me. Is this saying that the devil was a god? Yes and no. And let me explain it. It's speaking of Elohim, of which God is an Elohim, but not all Elohim is God. The notion that the prince of Tyre would think himself to be fit to rule in God's place is very ludicrous. Yeah, well, for a Jew, God was the Most High, the true King and Creator of heaven and earth. That's right. And the Lord is referred to as El Elyon often in the Old Testament, which is God Most High. You can see that in Genesis 14 and 20, Genesis 14, 22, and many other places. I'm not going to take time to list them all. Why was the Lord called the Most High? Well, the point of assigning El and Elyon to the Lord was to show that he was incomparable among all other spiritual beings. Hopefully, everyone noticed how God acknowledged the intelligence of this prince, but also reminded him that he is nothing. In other words, he actually said, you're not a God, you are a man. Yeah, I saw that, and God also let him know he's certainly not the most high. This kind of arrogance must be punished, and judgment is certain to come. That's right. In verse 10, God adds what seems to be a strange detail. Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Since the actual prince of Tyre was an uncircumcised Gentile anyway, that seems a little confusing. If we would read a little further into the book of Ezekiel, the point becomes clear to the ancient reader. It won't be as clear to us as it would have been to them back then. I'm glad it would have been clear to them, but the water seems a little muddy to me. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) Well, you have to remember the underworld realm of the dead is Sheol. Sheol is described by Ezekiel as the place where the uncircumcised warrior king enemies of Israel finds themselves. I know that's a lot to hang on to, but let's go over to Ezekiel 32. I want to read verse 21, 24 through 30, and then verse 32. I know this is kind of heavy, but listen to it. The strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with them that help him. They are gone down. They lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. There is Elam and all her multitude round about her grave, all of them fallen, slain by the sword which are gone down uncircumcised into the nether parts of the earth, which caused their terror in the land of the living. Yet have they borne their shame with them that go down into the pit. They have set her abed in the midst of the slain with her multitude. Her graves are round about him, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Though their terror was caused in the land of the living, yet have they borne their shame with them that go down into the pit. He has put in the midst of them that be slain. There is Meshach, Tubal, and all her multitude. Her graves are round about him, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword, though they caused their terror in the land of the living. 
And they shall not lie with the mighty that are fallen of the uncircumcised, which are gone down to hell with their weapons of war. And they have laid their swords under their heads, but their iniquity shall be upon their bones, though they were the terror of the mighty in the land of the living. Yea, thou shalt be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised, and shalt lie with them that are slain with a sword. There is Edom, her kings, and her princes, which with their might are laid by them that were slain by the sword. They shall lie with the uncircumcised, and with them that go down to the pit. There be the princes of the north, and all of them, and all the Zidonians, which are gone down with the slain, with their terror, they are ashamed of their might, and they lie uncircumcised with them that be slain by the sword, and bear the shame with them that go down into the pit. For I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid in the midst of it, the uncircumcised with them that are slain with the sword, even Pharaoh and all his multitude, saith the Lord God. Man, I wish I would have waited to mention that the water seemed a little muddy to me, because that portion has so much within it. I don't know what to think. (laughs) I honestly don't have time to follow all of the various trails that these verses open up to us. But for now, I'm going to try to limit my remarks so we can return to the original thought we've been talking about. These scriptures explain the place where the dead or the Rephaim are being held. Now, the Rephaim are quasi-supernatural beings of which we'll encounter much later in our studies. But for right now, I want to introduce you to that term. That term is in the Bible at times, the Rephaim, but sometimes the word dead translates as the Rephaim. This is the judgment, though, that's awaiting for the prince of Tyre and the serpent of Genesis. Okay, I'll concede the fact that I believe there is biblical proof that these beings will be judged with a very harsh judgment. Yeah, but it's at this point that God has Ezekiel lament over the prince of Tyre, that brilliant prince whose arrogance has led to his fall, not only to the earth, but under the earth. Listen to verse 12 and 13 of Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes were prepared in thee in the day thou was created. In verse 13, it refers to Eden, the garden of God. Then in verse 14, there's a mention of God's holy mountain. You know, these verses raise many questions. Yeah, well, how was the prince of Tyre in the Garden of Eden? The prince of Tyre wasn't in Eden. He was in Tyre. That's the whole point. This is a man living hundreds and even thousands of years after the Garden of Eden. All of this has been about the prince of Tyre and how he's been a rebel and how he's fought against God. But now all of a sudden, God says, you were in the Garden of Eden. What does that mean? We see now, although Ezekiel 28 is about the prince of Tyre, he's describing this prince's arrogance, his downfall, his original state, and we see the one who caused the downfall back in Eden. Well, see, I've always heard this setting preached as if it was the devil and not an actual prince. Well, I have too, but this was to be prophesied to an actual prince over the nation of Tyre. But despite all of that, you can see how the rebuke went not only to this king or this prince of Tyre, It went to the devil himself, that serpent that was in the Garden of Eden. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of scholars who argue that the prince of Tyre that God was talking to was Adam because it was said that he was in Eden. Well, now that doesn't make any sense to me. 
Yeah, well, to me, it's not plausible on many counts. Well, you know, to me, the only one who fits this description in every way is the serpent, who we all know was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Yeah, or a divine being who abandoned his place in hopes of attaining God's place. So where is mention of the serpent in Ezekiel 28? The prince that was in the Garden of Eden, that Garden of God, is the devil. He's got to be the serpent because it was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He never said the devil in the Garden of Eden. Well, he was beautiful, and he had all these jewels. That was his adornment or covering. True, but some people think that this refers to a literal jeweled garment that was worn by a human prince. There are also the same ones who argue that this prince that was in Eden was Adam. Now, that sounds reasonable until you really start looking at how this figure is characterized in the verses that follow. Well, I can't help it. I just don't see it being Adam. Well, I don't either, but allow me to give you a little bit of the reasoning. In verses 14 down through 17, it says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Well, that didn't convince me at all. Was Adam ever referred to as an anointed cherub? What do we read in Genesis 3 that Adam was filled with violence? I don't remember saying that Adam's sin came because he was prideful of his own beauty and splendor either. No, and I'm with you. And To me, I, I was sharing this with you to prove to you there's no way this can be talking about Adam. There's only a few little points that you say, yeah, I kind of could see Adam there. But if all you see is Adam, somehow you're missing the serpent right there in plain view. And those are a few of my points I was planning to make, but I'll add another one. When was Adam cast to the ground to be exposed before kings? That's what it said in verse 17. When Adam was cast, he was cast out, cast out of Eden, but not down. You know, and on top of it all, Adam wasn't cast down before kings. There wasn't even any kings back then. That's exactly right. So we have to ask the question, was Ezekiel drawing on a tale about the rebellion of a divine being who was cast down, who was fighting against God? Or was he talking about Adam's rebellion against God and was cast out of the garden? Well, now that's a new thought for me because I've always just leaned to the fact it was all about Adam. But that leaves the serpent out of the equation, doesn't it? It does. So now we must ask, who or what is the serpent figure? Well, I thought that's what we were supposed to be studying today anyway. <laughs> well, the ground to which this haughty being was cast down to is really of interest. The Hebrew word translated as ground is Eretz. Eretz is a common term for the earth that's under our feet, the world on which we walk upon. But it's also a word that's used to refer to the underworld, the realm of the dead, as we saw back in Ezekiel 32 and 21 through 32. Okay, Adam was already on the earth. So how could he be cast down to the earth and then be sentenced to die there? This just doesn't add up unless Adam was previously in heaven. But we know that he was the first human being created on earth, not in heaven. That's right. So this points us to the expulsion of a heavenly being out of the divine counsel of God down to this earth. 
Since we see that we're not dealing with only an animal right here in Genesis 3, there's really no other option left, but this was a divine being that was cast as a creature in the garden. You know, this description of the figure in the garden as an anointed cherub makes sense. Yeah, well, a cherub was known as a divine throne guardian in the ancient Near East. Ancient Near Eastern art has many examples of such throne guardians even being depicted as animals. Were any of them depicted as serpents by chance? Yes, and actually, many of them were. So let's summarize what we have seen thus far. Ezekiel 28 depicts the prince of Tyre by connecting him with the tale of divine arrogance that was found in Eden, and even before Eden, and it was because of this arrogance that got him cast out of heaven. This is where a member of God's council thought he could ascend above the Most High. This divine throne guardian was expelled from Eden to the ground, or even to the underworld. You know, I've been thinking, and I believe most of these elements show up in another familiar passage, and that's Isaiah 14. You're exactly right. And that's exactly the next place that I had intended on going. So let's go ahead and go there. Let's take a fresh look at what went on in Eden through the lens of Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14 and 4, God tells the prophet to take up a proverb against the king of Babylon. That word proverb is a Hebrew word called mashal. Mashal is better understood as a comparative parable. And more specifically, it's a parable that contrasts something. Now that makes this even more intriguing because that brings up a question again. To whom is the king of Babylon being compared? That's what we're going to be looking at. The beginning of the parable sounds as unfavorable to the king of Babylon as Ezekiel's prophecy sounded about the prince of Tyre. Well, the king of Babylon is called an oppressor in verse 4, and then he's called one who persecuted the nations in verses 5 and 6. That's right. The world will finally be at rest when the oppressor is laid down. If you'll notice, that's what verses 7 and 8 says. In anticipation of finally being rid of the king of Babylon, the prophet writes in verse 9, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Well, see, once again, I've always heard this preached as being the devil. That's right. And that's exactly who we're talking about. But this is also the serpent. God says through Isaiah that hell or Sheol stirreth the dead. Well, right here, dead is Rephaim once again. Even all the chief ones of the earth. Here's that Hebrew word, Eretz. So now we've got Sheol, we've got the Rephaim, and we've got Eretz, which is the underworld. So Sheol is located in the underworld, and this is where the Rephaim are. This is where the prince of Tyre was told he was going. This is where the king of Babylon's told that he's going. This is where the serpent, that old devil, is going. What's the chances that this is three different beings or one specific being? Here's where things get a little weird for us because we're unaccustomed to this kind of thinking. Oh, boy, if this is where it gets weird, I'm in trouble then. It's been a little weird for a while to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, most people understand hell as the place of eternal punishment. Well, it is, isn't it? It is, but the word translated as hell right here is the Hebrew word sheol. Sheol means the underworld or the place of the dead. It can even mean the pit. Think of what this is saying. The place of the dead, this underworld, stirs up the dead for you. Oh, wow. Now that sure puts things in perspective. (laughs) My The word for dead is not the usual word that the writers would use right here. This time, it is specifically Rephaim. Hey, that's the same word you mentioned from Ezekiel, wasn't it? 
It is. And the Hebrew word rapha is the root word that's used here, and it means to be lax or at rest. So when you put the plural im on it, raphaim, which is raphaim, it's placed on the ending to show that more than one is intended. Well, in other words, it is the souls of those who were laid to rest. In other words, the dead. Exactly. So now let's interpret what's being said to this king of Babylon here. Hell, or the place of the dead, that place from beneath, beneath what? Beneath the earth, is moving to meet you at your coming. It, speaking of hell, is stirring up those that are at rest in death for you. Good gracious. Talk about some wild imagery. Well, as in Ezekiel 28, this figure in Isaiah 14 is cast down. This time he's cast down to Sheol, the underworld. The Rephaim are there, which are known in Hebrew as dead warrior kings. Those kings who died in battle are waiting there. The Bible has these Rephaim saying unto this evil figure, you've become the same as us. They ask the question, art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like us? You know, it was said that the king of Babylon would become one of those living dead, which is just like what was said about the prince of Tyre. Yeah, but Ezekiel 28 then shifted its focus from the prince of Tyre to a divine figure found in Eden. The writer was linking the earthly prince of Tyre, who was an actual figure, with a divine rebel. And now Isaiah 14 is beginning that exact same shift from an actual king that's in Babylon, and it's making the same connection to the serpent or to the devil. For years, I've heard Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and Genesis 3 preached as if it was a devil. <laughs> and if what you have said is right, this still links all these portions together. And the way you're describing them is different from the way I've understood it. But it does seem to make sense because you've tied multiple themes together about it all. I'm glad you're getting on board with it. Finally. <laughs> so now let's look at Isaiah 14, verses 12, 13, 14, and 15, and pay close attention to what we're saying here. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Once again, the figure whom the king of Babylon is being compared to is a divine fallen being who fell from heaven. Did you notice that in verse 12? He's called the son of the morning, which is a shortened version of the word morning star. If you'll remember when we talked about Job 38 and 7 and different passages earlier on in the study, that tells us that these morning stars were angels or divine beings. It takes us back to Job 38 and 7, where they are the morning stars, the sons of God. Yeah, I remember that from a month or two ago. And we also know that the morning stars are the sons of God, which are Elohim. That's it. Morning star is an English rendering of the Hebrew word Hillel ben Shekar. Okay, that literally means the shining one, the son of the dawn. Well, just like Ezekiel, Isaiah portrayed this divine being as enamored by his own brilliance. This being was in heaven. Then he was cut down to the earth. What does it mean when it says that he had weakened the nations? This weakening of the nations refers to God disinheriting the nations after Babel and putting them under the rule of the other beings in the divine council. Did you happen to notice that this being had a throne in heaven? 
Did you happen to notice that? Go, let's go back to verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. So great was his arrogance that he declared himself to be above all the stars of God. In other words, I'm greater than all the other angels. I'm better than all the other members of the divine council. You know, this being sought superiority over the other members of the divine council, man, that's wild. And you can see this when he said that he would exalt my throne, and then his desire was to sit on the mount of the congregation also. Okay. What is the mount of congregation? Well, this mount of congregation is also called or referred to as the mount of the assembly, and it speaks of the divine council because of its location is in Zaphon, which means the north. It's up high. When it speaks of this being's desire to be in the clouds, this is the glory cloud that God rides on. Oh, my goodness. I had never noticed that point before, but now that is God's turf for sure. He wanted his seat in the divine assembly to be above all others, even above God. He wanted to be like the most high, which is El Yon. So he was cast down low. He wanted to go up high. He was cast down low. It's no surprise that this being meets the same end as the divine throne guardian in Ezekiel 28. There are three places here in Isaiah where we see his fate. In verse 9, verse 12, and verse 15, hell from beneath is moved to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Once again, most people preach that Satan, Lucifer, and the devil, these are all the same being. This seems to be making the same case right here. It is, and I believe that they are the same being. His punishment was to be cast down to the earth and ultimately under the earth in the underworld to live in the realm of the dead. He ends up being in Sheol, or the pit, and was brought down to the earth, or the Eretz, by God the Most High. Okay, hey, this episode's getting a little lengthy. Were, were you going to fully explain the serpent? Okay, yes. And in Genesis 3, we've got the serpent, which comes from the Hebrew word nokesh. It has connections to the word nokesh, which means the diviner. My goodness. Divination is communication with the supernatural world, right? Yes, a diviner in the ancient world was one who foretold omens and gave out divine oracles. This serpent is more than just a mere snake, for he's a divine adversary, one who divines, one who is into divination. I want to explain the curse of the serpent in Genesis 3 and 14 for just a moment. His punishment in the garden was to be brought low. Did you catch that? He was going to be cast down cut low, brought low. All of those things are said in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. God told the serpent that he would be cursed and brought lower than even the cattle and the beast of the field. Yeah, I remember this. So how is all of this connected to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14? The one who wanted to be exalted above all other beings in heaven will be made lower than the unclean animals of the earth. Upon thy belly is a reference to God casting this being down before him. What about the part where God says, dust ye shall eat? Well, I believe this refers to two specific things. Number one, not only will the serpent be cast down to the earth, ultimately he will be under the earth in the realm of the dead. Hell, Sheol, whatever you want to refer to it as. Number two. 
This is also to be taken as figurative of devouring mankind. For man was made from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2 and 7. When it says he's going to eat dust, most people say, oh, it's a definite snake. He's flat on his belly, crawling on the ground. He's licking up the dust. No, he's eating the dust. Oh, my. So the serpent would eat or devour the dust, which is symbolic of humanity? Yes. Man, my mind is racing now. The Bible talks about how the devil walks about seeking whom he may devour. That's it. All of this is tying together. Isn't it making more sense now? You tie in 1 Peter 5 and 8, what you just quoted. It reminds us that our adversary is out and about doing what he came to do. He was cast down, and now he's doing everything he can do to get back at God. You might find it interesting that the word for devour in the Greek right here in 1 Peter 5 and 8 is katapino. Katapino means to drink down, to swallow up, to devour, or to consume in one gulp. What does eat mean in the Hebrew there in Genesis 3? The Hebrew word there is akal. Akal means the exact same thing that I just described. It means to devour or consume totally. This anointed cherub, the one who was so bright, so beautiful and splendorous, he's going to be brought down in every facet of the term. Have you ever wondered how some people who live like the devil can preach outstanding? <laughs> yes, I have wondered about that several times through the years. Our adversary has an anointing that was God-given in heaven, and now he uses that for deception. Remember, he's the anointed cherub. Well, that makes total sense. So he's still using his gift, but for the wrong reasons. Yes. That ought to speak to every one of us. Don't ever use your gifting for the wrong reasons. That's right. And here's a point I want to make. If you do, you're going to end up acting like the devil. Hmm. <laughs> Have you ever wondered how some of the professional Christian singers can write such touching songs and reach the really high notes like no other ordinary person? I have. Is it the same thing? It's nothing more than the enemy's way to deceive those who aren't close enough to God to tell the difference. Look at the fruit. Doesn't it look good? Wouldn't you like to have what they have? I mean, look at them. They do pretty much anything they want to. It won't hurt to try it. It don't hurt to do that. They do that, and they still have the anointing. Boy, what a sober way to end this fascinating study. Yeah, can you see why I believe the serpent is more than just a snake that was used by the devil? Yeah, well, it's all starting to come together for me better. There's just so much to take in. There is. We just laid some groundwork today that in the next few episodes, I'm going to be trying to build upon even more. I hope you see that it wasn't just a serpent that was being talked about in Genesis 3. It wasn't just a king that was being talked about in Babylon in Isaiah 14. It wasn't just a prince that was being talked about from Tyre in Ezekiel 28. This is one divine being who is stirring up the kings of the earth to fight against God and his people. It's a big scheme that the devil's got trying to get back at God. If you can't get to somebody, get to their children. That will get to the person. God's children are having to put up with the devil since he's mad at God for being cast out of heaven. Folks, we want to thank you again for tuning in, being with us today. And remember, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture or connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That is dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time. May God bless you all. Be sure and come back Monday, March the 4th, for episode number 158, The Man Who Was Blind. He's done so much for me, this I know.
Will you change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven I wanna go. I wanna go. I wanna go to that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I wanna go.